KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are talking about your data and your digital devices. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. The process of getting a cell phone repaired can be so cumbersome, it's easier to just buy a new one. But a new bill could change that. You know, when you buy something, you should be able to do what you want with it. Um, And this is about giving people all those options. Plus, we'll break down more legislation that makes it easier for you to delete your data online. And a program to protect Cambodian-American children from generational trauma. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A new bill that's better for the environment and might also save you some money offers repair benefits that are both accessible and affordable. Senate Bill 244, better known as the Right to Repair Act, stands out because it mandates companies make it easier for you to repair your electronics and appliances, which means that instead of upgrading your glitchy cell phone every two years, you might be able to just get it repaired instead. The California Public Interest Research Group Director, Jen Engstrom and local repair shop owner Tony Heipel from iTech, iPhone, and MacBook Repair Shop spoke with KPBS Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken about the bill. So, Jen, you've been on the program before talking about the right to repair. It's something that you've been working on for years now. So, what is in this bill that passed last week, and why do you think it's important for consumers in California? Yeah, great question. So we are really excited because last week, the state legislature finally, after six years, um, approved the Right to Repair Act. What this bill does is it gives all Californians, both consumers and independent repair shops, access to what we need to fix our stuff. Um, So access to the parts and the tools and the service information needed to repair our electronics and our appliances so we can keep them working longer and throw less away. And so what kind of stuff are we talking about here? What type of devices are included in this bill? Um, Yeah, this is everything from smartphones to refrigerators. Um, We've heard a lot of people complain about breaking their laptop computers and needing to get them fixed and experiencing really um, high prices. Um, And this will help people to, you know, be able to fix them cheaper because there'll be more competition and consumer choice in the repair marketplace. 
So, Jen, how big of a problem is e-waste today? Yeah, our country and our state has an electronic waste problem. California households alone produce an estimated 772,000 tons of e-waste each year. That's 46,000 cell phones every single day. And that's a problem because it's not only overfilling our landfills, but when those electronics break down, that can leach toxic chemicals like lead and mercury into our environment. It could even get into our groundwater. Um, So by keeping things in use longer, we can really cut down on all of that e-waste. And then on top of that, when you have to replace something because you can't get it fixed, that also means more manufacturing, you know, more production, and that uses a lot of energy, can release greenhouse gas emissions. So by keeping things in use longer, we're also helping the climate. We estimated that if you kept yourself, if everyone kept their cell phone for one year longer, that would be the equivalent in terms of emission reductions as taking 600,000 cars off the road. And Tony, you, you know, you see this in your day to day. What types of repairs do you find to be the most difficult that maybe really shouldn't be that difficult? Um, there's actually a lot of them, but we'll just take your simple battery repair or screen repair. Those are the most common ones. Back in the day, it didn't used to be too much of a problem. We would just change your screen or your battery and send you on your way. Now, if we change your screen, battery, or camera, you're going to get this notification that it's been changed and it says unable to verify if this part is original or not, even if you did put the original one in there. And it's kind of hard to convince customers sometimes that you're not cheating them, that it actually is an original part. And you, you specialize in Apple products. I mean, what makes their devices so difficult to fix specifically? Um, they just put up a lot of roadblocks. It doesn't need to be so hard to fix, but um, yeah, they just kind of go out of their way to make it harder and harder. We'll just take the battery, for example. Um, we used to just be able to to pop it out of there. Now they use like really tight adhesive and it's like glued in there so hard. It makes it kind of dangerous to pull it out. It's a task in itself. Just kind of little booby traps or even if you do have the part, it won't work if you install it. So we, we have a lot of hurdles to jump through. You know, Tony, now that you mention it, I actually have an older MacBook with a broken screen. I mean, if I'm considering, say, getting a newer version with, you know, a newer chip versus just fixing the screen, you know, what are some of the things I should think about when making that decision? Well, I usually tell my customers if 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 they break something and they want to upgrade to get a new one, you got to sometimes think about the costs. So your old one, it'd probably be more cost efficient to fix the old one, keep it running because there's probably nothing wrong with it other than you just wanting the new one because they make you want it. And then if you do get the new one and then if you do happen to break that new one, the repair costs for the new one opposed to your old ones. It's kind of something I tell people to think about, especially with phones. Yeah. And Jen, you know, Tony just mentioned it, this idea of of these companies kind of making you want the new one. I know for the Right to Repair Act, you know, you've been working with companies like Apple. What has that process been like to bring them on board and kind of get them on board with with what your goal was here? Yeah, we um, we're really excited that companies like Apple and HP have actually come on board and said that they support the idea of Right to Repair. Um, And these are companies that were longtime opponents to this idea. I think it just shows that right to repair has become very popular amongst consumers. Folks want to be able to fix things and want to be able to fix things easily and 
affordably. Um, and so they saw it and, you know, in their interest to actually come on board and, and support this idea. Um, so they're supportive of the bill. Now we need to make sure that they the bill gets signed and then they, you know, implement it and make their things both repairable, easier to repair and then just more repairable and last longer. What would that actually look like in terms of making it easier to repair? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is to make the repair materials available. That's what right to repair is about, that if things are fixable, those things we need, the parts and the tools and the service information should be accessible to customers, to consumers, independent repair shops. You know, this is the idea of of ownership. If you own something, you should be able to fix it how you want to fix it and have all these choices. That's the first step. Um, And then there's the next step, which is to just make the devices actually last longer um, and not need to repair them so much, making them designed to last. So that's really what we need companies to start doing is actually designing their products so that you don't have to fix them so often that they actually are, you know, designed to last. And in this process of, you know, getting these companies like Apple on board, I mean, were there concerns more about intellectual property or more just about potential loss of sales? You know, this idea of of customers hanging on to devices longer. Yeah, I mean, the things that the company said that they were looking for is to make sure that the bill protected consumers' privacy um, and protected intellectual property. So we worked with the industry to come up with amendments to just make sure that this bill was good for consumers and good for these companies. And we think that the end result is something that is really good for the state of California. We're hoping that the governor signs it. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bracken. I'm speaking with Jen Engstrom from CalPerg and San Diego repair store owner Tony Heipel about the Right to Repair Act, which was approved by the California legislature last week. Jen, as we noted, you and other advocates have worked on this legislation for years now, but earlier efforts never made it this far. Why? What changed this year? Yeah, there has been a really big growing movement for the right to repair over the last six years. Um, What started out as a really radical idea six years ago is now something that both the Biden administration has called for, that other states have enacted. There's right to repair laws now in New York and Minnesota. Um, And it's something that the public just, just wants. We've seen a lot of support in our state. Over 100 elected officials have signed on in support and 80 repair shops and environmental groups. Um, The thing that's really cool for me is to just know that this started as a scrappy group of tinkerers and consumers and environmentalists and small business owners who decided to come together to take on the tech industry to, you know, fight for the right to fix our stuff, which, again, was thought of as really radical. But now it's become something that is just really common sense. And then the public agrees we should have. And the legislature approved it with bipartisan support. So it just shows that, you know, if you come together with a smart idea, you can, you know, if you build enough public support and kind of get the idea out there and build enough visibility around something, um, you can make things happen. It's pretty exciting to see. And Tony, I mean, how would this change repair shops like yours? I mean, what could you offer customers that you can't today? Probably cheaper prices and more options and getting things done quicker. So this bill passed with near unanimous support. I think there may have been just one no vote in total. Why do you think this issue, unlike so many others today, was able to get such strong bipartisan support? Yeah, I think this is a bill that is really common sense. It's good for consumers, it's good for small businesses, and it's good for the planet. This will save Californians an estimated $5 billion a year. It will reduce the amount of e-waste that ends up in our landfills. 
and it will help, you know, small businesses thrive. So it's kind of a win-win-win. Um, and once we brought that idea up to people, it was really, you know, no arguing that this just makes sense for our state. So a lot of it was having to just make sure people understood what right to repair really is about and, you know, building, you know, educating them and building support around this issue. And Tony, so in the meantime, what suggestions would you give people when it comes to their electronics, whether they should, you know, consider fixing versus replacing? What, what should they be thinking about there? Sometimes you got to weigh the costs and a lot of people are in love with their devices and they want them fixed no matter what. Just mainly the costs or how long can you keep that thing going? And Jen, I'm curious what resources you might be able to recommend for consumers considering fixing versus maybe recycling an older device. Um, I think you mentioned kind of, you know, these tinkers and, you know, engaging with this tinker Mm -hmm. community in this process. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd say the great thing about right to repair is that, you know, if this becomes law, you'll have that decision, those choices. (laughs) You know, when you buy something, you should be able to do what you want with it. Um, And this is about giving people all those options. So if you like fixing things yourself, you can fix it yourself. Um, there's good resources out there like iFixit that has a lot of how-tos on how to fix things yourself. If you want to get it recycled and get it to an e-waste recycler, you can do that. Um, we've worked with Homeboy Industries, which has a great e-waste recycler, and they'll um, refurbish a lot of items and resell them to you know folks in the community that need those more affordable devices. Um, or if you want to go to you know a local repair shop, you can do that. And then, of course, there's nothing stopping you from still going to the original manufacturer if you want to go there, too, to get it fixed. The point is just to have all of those different options. I think California is just the third state to pass legislation like this. Are there any efforts for a national right to repair law? There are, yeah. I mean, first of all, there are over 40 states that have introduced legislation like this in the last six years. Um, There is also federal right to repair legislation that's been introduced, though, you know, it hasn't gotten that far. But we're hoping now that we have, you know, something we're on the verge here in California, that that will make it easier for other states and hopefully to get something passed nationally. And Tony, I'm curious, is there any particular fix you're most looking forward to being able to do a little bit easier if this bill passes, if it's signed by Governor Newsom? Not any one in particular, but a great many of them. Um, Yeah, I can make a long list of them. Oh, give us a few. What you got? Um, we'll say face ID for one, um, or any type of biometrics like your face scanner or fingerprint scanner, um, or even the lid angle sensor on the MacBook. Some of these things, no matter what, it's not going to work when you put a new one in. Things like that, um, not blocking us through software once we do have the hardware. So it's kind of like a dealing with one thing or the other. It just make life so much easier. And do you think, Tony, that this might fuel more people to take on the challenge of, you know, fixing their electronics more, maybe just ordering parts from you or or trying to do it more on their own? Um, I think it would give them more confidence to do it on their own because a lot of times customers will call us and ask us, hey, I just want to do this or that. And we'll caution them with great caution. Do not even attempt to do it because you will break something. It's going to end up costing you more because it's not as easy as you think. So, Jen, this bill passed last week. It now sits on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. Do you have any indication whether he'll sign it? And if so, when that'll happen? He has until October 14th. Um, We're hoping that given that the bill passed with so much support in the legislature, that that means he'll sign it. But, you know, we're, we're waiting at this point and hoping that he does. 
That was the California Public Interest Research Group Director Jen Engstrom and local repair store owner Tony Heipel speaking with Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken. Coming up, do you know how your data is collected online? Everything that we do across the internet basically becomes part of our digital footprint. Learn more about that and how to delete your digital footprint after the break. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Now we go from the right to repair to the right to delete. California lawmakers last week passed a bill to make it easier for us to delete our personal information online. If signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom, the Delete Act would allow Californians to reduce their digital footprint through a single request. Here to explain more about digital footprints is Mark Kapsinski, Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at OneRep, which is a data protection company. Mark, welcome to Midday Edition. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So um, can you first explain what we mean when we say digital footprint? (laughs) Yeah, uh, some days I wish it was just a simple, easy answer. But digital footprints basically refer to all the different ways we as end users or consumers travel across the Internet. And at every stop along the way, whether it's through a browser or through an app that we're using, the sites, um, whether it's a business site like uh, an e-commerce store like Amazon or a publisher where we're reading news articles or we're listening to uh, a podcast to you name it, uh, watching a movie trailer, everything that we do across the internet basically becomes part of our digital footprint. And all those different stopping points that we make every single day all these different kinds of business entities are collecting our data. And each one of those represents some little piece of our footprint. And ultimately, what what happens are different companies try to take that, those little bits and turn them into bigger and bigger bits so that they can learn more and more about us and use that information for a wide swath of uh, of of reasons whether it's you know marketing selling as advertising selling our data uh, and other things oh, that's a lot to dig into so how much information is actually out there about us yeah i mean i think the simple answer is too much information um and and that's really you know part of the problem is there's so much information out there that most of us, even myself, who I'm in this business every day, it's so difficult to find all the information that someone has on you out there. 
and then go through the process to try to have it removed or deleted or blocked or not made available for sale. It's, uh, it's, it's sadly a hugely cumbersome problem. Well, you know, so there are data brokers. So what exactly are data brokers and how do they get my information? Yeah, so data brokers operate on a couple different levels. So in I think you also have to use the term uh, data like collectors, I, I, I'll say as well. So there's kind of like three levels at the end of the day. There's web, let's just use the simple term websites, various websites that collect data about you and I every single day. Like we go to a website, we register uh, to, you know, learn more about their e-commerce products, or we register to watch a movie trailer, or we register to read the news, or anything and everything in between. All these little collection points, we're typing in our information into their site so that we can create an account or so that we can gain access to that thing that we want. Uh, the trailer, the news, the article, the song, you name it. And what happens is there's big companies, big data aggregators, I'll say, that basically partner or try to purchase data, if you want to think of it that way, from all these like little publishers, if you want to call them that, these little data collection sites. And the big data aggregators collect little bits of information from all these different sites about us, right? N no one of uh, these small companies that's collecting it has everything on every American, but the big data aggregators are trying to do that, right? So by collecting data from, call it a thousand different websites, they can start to find, oh, Mark's over here, Mark's over there, Mark's over here, and start to assemble uh, like a synthetic identity about who I am. And then what happens is once they have enough data about me from all these collection points that they partner with, well, then they start to sell it. And they sell it to smaller data aggregators that are sometimes also known as people search sites. These are kind of the, the real nasty ones that you see when you do a Google search for yourself, like Spokio and My Life and White Pages and all these sites that basically buy your personal information, buy that digital footprint, and then they create what seems very innoxious, but they create HTML pages with some of our information on it so that Google can then crawl their websites and index all this personal information. I mean, so are they doing AI to put all of this information together? That's what's funny. Like, they're not yet. Maybe at the, the larger aggregator side, these you know big data aggregators, they're probably using it because they're more sophisticated. They're you know, they're big companies, right? Some are publicly traded. Mm -hmm. And so they're probably using artificial intelligence and machine learning to stitch the data together. Mm -hmm. But when you bring it down to these, again, what are known as people search websites, these sites aren't very sophisticated. They're, they're really just marketing sites. And they're really good with what's called SEO or search engine optimization. So they're not doing anything fancy. They're just simply buying data as their product to sell yeah. putting it in such a way that Google can index it. And then, you know, people around the internet can find it and buy it. Wow. I mean, so how much is our data worth then? And how much money are data brokers making off of it? 
some of these data brokers, you know, are making in the 10, 20 million, some, you know, all the way up into like hundred million dollars of revenue per year. So they're making pretty good coin off of our data. And really the key, you know, the sad key to this is like you and I never authorized any of them to have our information much less put it in a manner that Google can index it. Like, I certainly never signed anything that agreed to that. Right. So you say a fundamental question, though, uh, that we need to think about is who owns our data? And, and why is that a question we need to be thinking about today? Yeah, well, here in America, sadly, you and I don't own our data. We don't own our identity. The companies that collect our data and process it are the ones that actually own our data and our identities. And so that's like a fun, to me, the fundamental issue is like, I don't own my own information. Amazon owns it and a thousand other websites own it, but I don't own it. I have no rights to it. Because I've, in essence, by using Amazon or using any of these, you know, little, uh, you know, movie trailer websites, any website that I go to, I'm basically giving them permission to have my data and do what they want with it because they listed in their privacy policy that they're going to be selling my data. Right. Mm, right. So how would the Delete Act then change our digital footprints if it does become law? Yeah, well, again, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Um, we'll have to see how it actually gets applied. Because, again, you know, what's happening is, you know, these large data aggregators, these big publicly traded companies that collect data for a living, you know, they feel like they have all the rights to, you know, this data because, you know, the publisher that originally collected it gave them the permission. So it's going to have to come down to what are those rights on a particular site when you sign up for the site for the site services, like again, I always pick on like movie trailers. You have to you know register and give them some basic information, but you're agreeing to a privacy policy in terms of service and use of that data. It all starts right there. So the delete act is interesting, but it's sort of like trying to catch it on the back end, not on the front end. And I think that's like where I'm waiting to see how it really manifests itself. Is like. Mm-hmm. Why are these companies even collecting and moving this data around in the first place, right? Just because, you know, then to put in a, a delete act where we try to delete it, you know, after it's already been released. It's like we need to solve this problem up front. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with Mark Kapsinski of One Rep about our digital footprints. And Mark, how easy do these data brokers make it to have your personal information removed? <laughs> that's that's, a, laughable, that's a, right? a great question. <laughs> I always like to say uh, just because they have to do something doesn't mean they have to make it easy or do it fast. And what you find with these people search sites is you know, they drag their feet on it because every time we remove information from their site, we're basically removing product that they can no longer sell. And so the challenge is, you know, they don't want to remove product, so they make it very difficult for consumers to have their information removed. And then, again, because they're really just marketing companies, they um, they don't really have a lot of data efficacy. So, just because you've submitted a removal request and and even if they acknowledge it um, and and actually do remove it, 
there's no guarantee that in a few months or six months when they get new data feeds from their suppliers, that your data is back in their system. And when you think about how all of our data is actually intertwined, I mean, just to, to, Mm -hmm. you know, get a cell phone, you've got to put your Google information in, (laughs) you know, I mean, everything's linked to this email account. And then through that email account, you're doing searches online. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. It's crazy. And, and to me, the, just the crazy part is like, how is it that Google is allowed to index all of our personal information and make it so easy to find? Like, how is that a thing? Right? That feels like an easy thing, easier thing anyway, to shut down first is like, if Google weren't allowed to index all of these people search websites, that's half the battle right there. Yeah. Because you're, that's the Google's the first place people go to try to find my personal information. So if we at least take that out, it just is making it far more difficult for people um, at the starting point to even find it. Because they'll type in my name and they'll just find my LinkedIn profile and be disappointed that they can't find my home address and then give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the majority of people will do that. But, you know, I think Google has a lot to answer for in this case as well. So even if California then does make it easier to delete personal information online, it it wouldn't go into effect until 2026. So what are some ways people can protect themselves today? You know, the the first thing is know what's out there, right? And and sadly, you know, this is something the consumer has to do. The end user has to do. It's not like someone else is looking out for you. You know, the government's not looking out for you. Businesses are, you know, so you got to take ownership for this problem or issue yourself. So the first thing we always recommend is do a uh, Google search for your name, but use a browser that's in uh, what's called incognito mode. So you're basically doing it as like a general user of the internet would find your information. And you'll be kind of shocked to find how much information is out there and, and easily indexed on you. The second thing you can do is certainly you can try to manually request all your information to be removed from these people search websites, or certainly, you know, that's the business that we're in at one rep. And, you know, you could use a service like ours or, or, uh, or the like that will help scrub the information. So you kind of like got to find it, you got to scrub it. And then the proactive thing after that is, you know, start thinking about creating like a synthetic identity for yourself, meaning a, a fake, a fake identity. And that's what you use when you sign up for things on the internet so that you're not giving out your real personal information. Cause even though it seems like, Oh, it's just a little movie trailer website. Like it has huge potential ramifications. And so um, we try to recommend people to create, you know, some fake identities that, you know, like I use this one for, you know, banking. I use this one for e-commerce. I use this one for, you know, sites where I'm trying to get a coupon or something. And that way you also know where your data is coming from uh, when it potentially can reappear on the Internet. It's also like, uh, you know, it's not even just online. It's on uh, apps. The apps on your phone are collecting data. I mean, there's so much um, out there. And evidently, it uh, brings in a lot of of money (laughs) for brokers. Well, you you know, it's funny. I always joke. It's like I'm old enough, I guess, to remember like the days sort of pre-internet. And it was like when the internet really was just taking off in in the mid to late 90s. It was like, everyone's like, you got to be on the internet. You got to be found. People have to find you on the internet. 
And now it's like, I don't want to be found. Please don't find me on the internet. <laughs> like, yeah. let me do everything I can not to be found. <laughs> the sentiment has changed. I've been speaking with Mark Kapsinski, Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at OneRep. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you so much as well. And, uh, you know, hopefully people get out there, find their information and start scrubbing it. Coming up, a program for Cambodian-American children to repair generational trauma. You have to, you know, be happy and move forward. And they would always tell me, you know, you know the kids back in Cambodia have it much worse than, than us. You know, we are blessed to be here in America. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Fresno is home to the fifth largest Cambodian-American community in California. A cultural kids program there is one of the many ways the Cambodian community is working to protect the next generation from the collective trauma of a brutal genocide that killed some two million people in the 1970s. While one person in 10 may be a physical casualty of the war, four people out of 10 have been rendered homeless. Many refugees fled the horror of the Khmer Rouge during Pol Pot's regime, and those who survived, including those who came here to California, often passed that trauma down to their kids. Sarith Hawk from KVPR Valley Public Radio is going to introduce us to one Fresno family working to heal from that experience. And just a heads up, this story talks directly about suicide. I'm at Fresno's largest Cambodian Buddhist temple for the inauguration of the new abbot. Chants, prayers, and blessings begin a three-day ceremony to welcome him. This was where I first met 36-year-old Nancy Meese, who helped to organize the event. She likes to volunteer at the temple and is often one of the youngest participants here. Even though, like, I'm American-born, but I, I feel like, you know, to make my ancestors proud, to make my parents and family proud... I have to carry on this tradition. Nancy was born and raised in Fresno to parents who fled the Khmer Rouge. She says her culture was almost stamped out by the genocide and mass migration. But it's these kinds of communal events that keep them whole. She has lots of memories at this temple where her grandmother was a Buddhist nun. I remember dropping my grandma off. She would come here and teach me how to, like... Then, you know, the Buddhist way of living. Nancy often brings food to the monks, one of whom is her father, Kongmis. He moved here to carry on the family's tradition of service a few years after his mother's death in 2012. 
On this hot and humid afternoon, the 76-year-old begins one of his favorite duties at the temple, watering the plants and vegetables. The peaceful atmosphere is a sharp contrast to what Kong and his family endured to get here. Like many Cambodian families in the U.S. today, the Mies family arrived as refugees. When the Khmer Rouge marched victoriously into Phnom Penh, no one knew how they would rule Cambodia. The country's borders were quickly sealed. Kong remembers the brutal working conditions under the regime. There wasn't enough food, and many people starved to death. You come to Tuka, Mangai Mangai, Mutangai Mutangai, you are about the one of his children died from starvation, and his older brother was executed by Khmer Rouge soldiers. He never knew what happened to him. Nancy only knows the broad strokes of what her parents endured. In 1979, when the regime fell, they, like thousands of others, fled to Thailand. While they waited for exit visas, Nancy's father risked his life to help other people sneak into their camp, Kawidang. It was the main place people could get visas to immigrate. He brought as many families as he can, possibly can. I'm talking about hundreds of families. <laughs> Kong Mies recalled how risky the missions were. They had to travel at night. Many of those he helped were living in other refugee camps. They were weak, sick, and desperate to get into Kawidang for the chance to leave that nightmare. Kong went out every night, guiding those who had lost their way. Thieves regularly searched travelers for hidden jewelry, and armed guards prowled the jungle paths. For Kong, the risks were worth it. He and his family eventually received a visa for the United States and emigrated to Fresno. They arrived in 1984. Nancy was born two years later. More than 40 years after the genocide, Nancy knows her parents suffer from the trauma of what they witnessed. But they don't talk much about the details. And even if they were willing to talk about what they went through, Nancy might not understand them. It's broken English, broken Khmer, all mixed up, and so, like, there's a lot of miscommunication. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it could be quite a, a lot of work, actually. Nancy says her parents didn't understand the way their kids dressed or acted once they moved to Fresno. They had grown up in a more reserved society. It's hard to understand their parents, where they came from, and so that causes a lot of... You know, it's just a culture clash. After resettling in the U.S., her parents were busy adjusting to a foreign country and finding work. They didn't have a lot of spare time to spend with their kids, and they lived in a low-income neighborhood, all they could afford. I just feel like there is a huge gap 
in so many levels for our community. Like we didn't have the right resources or if there was really any resource, you know, healthcare, education, it was just so hard for it to be accessible for our community. The Mies family survived a genocide, but they couldn't escape more tragedy in the U.S. Nancy is one of eight kids. Only five are still alive today. One child died during the genocide. Fresno claimed two more. Nancy's sister, Kania, died by suicide in 2010. She was only 25. We, we didn't expect it to happen, you know, um, my sister was a very bubbly person, loving, caring, kind. Kania was only a year older than Nancy, and they were close. It was just so hurtful that she couldn't at least share what was going inside, what was bothering her, because we were like best friends. Kania had been struggling with depression for months, but it was taboo in their family to talk about it. You have to, you know, be happy and move forward. And they would always tell me, you know, the kids back in Cambodia have it much worse than than us. You know, we are blessed to be here in America. Nancy knows this is how her parents learned to cope with all they suffered, but she wonders about the impact it had on her sister's mental health. I felt like they were dismissing what we felt internally. And because of that, not not wanting to blame them, but I feel in a sense that's the reason why my sister hid everything inside and didn't dare to let anything out. And she dealt with it by herself. Nancy just wishes Kania had confided in her. I, it took a toll on me where I felt like I failed to be a sister. Like, how could I let that happen? Nancy says the environment they grew up in didn't help. Their southeast Fresno neighborhood had gangs, and her brothers got involved. And it was a way for them to protect themselves from being bullied by other ethnic groups. Because of his gang connections, one of her brothers was deported to Cambodia. He doesn't even know Cambodia. He doesn't know the culture, and he can barely speak the language. Just after he was detained, Nancy's sister, Kania, died by suicide. He was in shackles when he attended Kania's viewing. He wasn't even allowed to stay for the funeral. He took it really hard. Um, he was able to go to her viewing for like literally 30 minutes. And it, it broke my heart to see him drop down to his knees and, you know, just fall. Rocked by these losses, Nancy planned a trip to Cambodia the following year. She wanted to visit sacred religious sites, check on her brother, and ground herself. While there, she experienced something profound, what she calls an awakening. I completely changed. I just completely, like, prioritized my life and filter out what wasn't important, what was. She felt spiritually connected to the world, able to accept what had happened. And when she returned to Fresno, she saw it as her duty to help her family heal from their losses. I felt like I... I had a huge role in bringing the family together, in a sense, spiritually. And if I don't do that, I feel like we're going to fall apart again. Her faith was put to the test once again. Just a few years ago, Nancy's oldest sister died from complications related to alcohol. Nancy says drinking was her way of coping with Kania's death. Sometimes, it all feels too much for Nancy to carry. I'm 
the young one in the family. And I just like, why is it a responsibility for me to be that glue in the family? Throughout her grief and loss, Nancy has turned to her religion and culture for comfort. She did see a therapist when Kania died, but didn't find it very helpful. She says if the care was more geared towards Cambodians, it might have been different. There is a model for that type of culturally responsive care in Fresno already. Zhe Vang is the clinical director at the Fresno Center, whose mission is to offer health and immigration services to the Southeast Asian community. So we have our men's group, our young women's group, our elderly women's group. Right now, they predominantly serve Hmong patients. But Vang says Cambodian Americans could benefit too. The Fresno Center's success with the Hmong community started with destigmatizing mental health. Generation after generation been told them that if you have mental health, you're actually crazy, but really you're not. Dr. Gia Zhang is a clinical psychologist and program director here. He says people were turned off by terms like mental health or clinic. And we actually have a lot of the ladies to kind of just kind of test this out with their husband and say, you know, when he asks you where you're going, you just say, I'm going to go to the happy house rather than going to seek mental health, right? It's a better positive turn. Here, people can get culturally appropriate care in their own language. A must, says Vang. When, when you provide mental health services with an interpreter, it completely changed the context of therapy because then you have to translate what the client is saying to the interpreter, then the interpreter translated to you. You lose all the emotions. She says sessions with elders in the community are very different from a Western approach to therapy. They don't take kindly to direct questions. It's almost like a dance. You know, they come in, we have to talk about, so what did you do today? Those type of things. And they're like, oh, nothing. And we have to kind of dance around what they do and, you know, how they're feeling, right? And then 10 minutes into the session, they finally say, oh, I feel really depressed. Vang started working with this program in 2019 and has seen it grow significantly. Although Vang and Zhang are both Hmong and specialize in treating Hmong patients, they say the intergenerational trauma and barriers to accessing care are similar across the Southeast Asian community. Sometimes the parents are just so busy making a living, you know, so busy with making sure that there's food on the table. You know, they don't have time for their kids. And so when they don't have time for their kids, and that oftentimes lead into, like, drugs. The parents and grandparents, survivors of war trauma, have a drive to survive. But the younger generation, born in the U.S., doesn't have that same focus. And that can lead to a culture clash, says Vang. They feel a sense of abandonment. There's really not a sense of belonging. Um, with the family, there's no some sort of like relationship at all. To make up for that, children often try to find supportive relationships somewhere else, sometimes in gangs. Many also suffer from anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. But it's because the parents have their own traumas, and it could be the fact that, you know, they're just really depressed. They really know how to talk to them at all. And traumatized parents can create new trauma for their children. These are all things Nancy Meese experienced in her own family. That's why she often visits the temple. It's her tradition to go on a meditation walk each time. So each step that I take around the perimeter, you know, the shrine, I feel like... It brings me more healing, brings more peace, more comfort. She makes sure to pass by the main pagoda and the prayer hall. If I don't take a look at it, it's, it's not, it's, I don't feel complete. 
and she often lingers at her favorite spot, the pond. I love seeing the lotus flowers. They sprout up from the green lily pads, tall, thin stalks blooming white and pink flowers. In order for it to become a beautiful flower, it has to go through mud and, you know, like all the dirt and challenges, the, the weather. They remind her of her own journey. But at the end of all the challenges and the winds and the storms, at the end, it blossoms, right? It blooms so beautifully. That piece was reported by Sarith Hawk from KVPR Public Radio. Anyone experiencing thoughts of suicide can call 988 to access the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It is available 24 hours a day. That's our show for today. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.